we've been spending a lot of time learning a whole lot about the brain and how it all connects to our muscles and how it all works. And that collective effort, which is going on across the globe, there's a lot going on here in the United States. I would even say we're the leaders, really. But there's stuff happening all over the world that is transformative because it opens up the possibility of discovering treatments and cures. That was Steve Spaulding speaking about the global research effort to find better treatments and possibly a cure for the crippling disease of ALS, sometimes known as motor neuron disease or Lou Gehrig's disease. ALS will be the focus of this episode, episode number three of Healthcare on the Horizon. Welcome to Healthcare on the Horizon. I'm your host, Jeff Ostroff. This podcast is intended for the general public and healthcare professionals. Healthcare on the Horizon is about where things stand now with the prevention, diagnosis, and treatment of specific diseases and how things might change with those in the future. Our goal is to help you learn more about these diseases and to give you a clearer picture of the work being done right now to improve or eradicate their adverse impact. Like its sister podcast, Looking Forward, Opportunities for Job, Career, Business, and Investment Seekers, Healthcare on the Horizon will look a bit into the future, in this case, to provide hopeful news about the various diseases we shine a light on. We hope you'll find the information here useful in an educational sense, but also, perhaps in a more personal way, should you, a family member, or a friend have one of the medical conditions we cover. Please note, the information shared on this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended as a substitute for the advice provided by your physician or any other healthcare professional. Hi, everyone. Today, you're going to learn about a progressive neurodegenerative disease that affects nerve cells in the brain and spinal cord. Despite its being relatively rare, this disease is well known to many of us. It's often called amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, or ALS, but it may also be known as motor neuron disease, or more commonly in the United States, Lou Gehrig's disease. In this episode, you'll learn about such things as who and how many people ALS affects around the world advances that have been made in helping diagnose and treat ALS, and what may lie ahead in tackling this terribly crippling and incurable disease. Spoiler alert, there's some reason for excitement here. You'll also learn how to get help if you or someone you know has ALS, where to find out about the research taking place, and how you can get involved in helping organizations that are devoted to helping people live with ALS and hopefully find a cure for it. To help us with all this, we've brought on an expert on ALS. He's Steve Spaulding. Steve Spaulding is the Director of Care Services for the Greater Philadelphia Chapter of the ALS Association. For the past five years, Steve has led the chapter's clinical team, which serves the needs of those living with ALS and their loved ones in the eastern half of Pennsylvania central and southern New Jersey, and all of the state of Delaware. Steve has worked in healthcare for over 25 years, 
serving those challenged by neurological disorders, chronic disease, behavioral health, and palliative and hospice care. He is passionate about helping people to have dignity and quality of life during their difficult journey with ALS, and he looks forward with optimism to a future with support, treatment, and a cure for ALS. Steve, welcome to Healthcare on the Horizon. Thanks, Jeff. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I'm so glad to have you on. I don't thankfully have anybody in my family who's ever had ALS, but I've certainly been around people who have had it, both as a volunteer for ALS, and I actually visited somebody once when I was doing something for volunteering not related ALS, where I saw somebody who had it, and I saw the impact it had on them and their family. So ALS is just a very important topic for me, and I'm sure for a lot of other people. I wonder if you would mind, Steve, briefly sharing with us your educational background, your experience that led you to what you're doing today, and then tell us a little bit more about when you came to your organization and also what you're doing there. Sure. First, thanks for your interest, because it is a really important topic. And uh, even though it's considered a rare disease, it isn't so rare. Everybody knows somebody with ALS, it seems. And uh, so it really is very, very important. And the more we can help folks understand it and what we do and how we can help for the future is important. As far as my background, I'm a clinician. Um, I've been working in healthcare for over 25 years, believe it or not. I can't believe that myself, but (laughs) I have. In the last five years, I've been leading our care services team for the Greater Philadelphia chapter of the ALS Association. And that's been a wonderful experience, continues to be a wonderful experience mostly because I'm working with an amazing interdisciplinary team. And we do some really interesting work to help and support folks. Well, that's great. What you're doing sounds extremely helpful and meaningful for many, many people. And we're going to talk about that later on. Steve, we hear about ALS a lot. We know about Lou Gehrig, how he was tied to ALS. When was ALS first identified? Was it around the time of Lou Gehrig? And who and how many people does it affect? Well, ALS actually goes back well before Lou Gehrig. Ah. Um, He was the most famous guy and sort of made it kind of a big deal for folks, or at least the first time they heard of it. But it actually goes back to 1869 with a French neurologist, uh, Jean-Martin Charcot. He was the guy who sort of started it. But when he coined that term and started that diagnosis, It wasn't well known. It was extremely rare in terms of people, even clinicians being aware of it. And so it kind of went along as kind of this very much background rare disease until 1941, which is what you were referring to with Lou Gehrig when he came in to make his famous speech that he had Lou Gehrig's disease. And then obviously in the United States, at least, it took on his name. And even today is widely known as that it's certainly better than ALS, which is short for amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. <laughs> you practice that one for a couple dozen times before you say it. Yeah. And then in other parts of the world, it's also known by many folks as motor neuron disease or MND. So how many people does it affect and who does it affect? Is there a certain demographic to this, Steve? Well, it affects about 30,000 people, give or take, in the United States each year, and about 5,000 new cases are diagnosed each year. So that's pretty significant. You know, now, obviously, there's other disease processes that have much greater numbers, but unfortunately, the impact of this disease is just tremendous. And uh, 
you know, it's, it's become a larger known disease and the numbers do seem to be creeping up, unfortunately. Uh, we don't know that that's a function of better diagnostic work being done or if people are actually being diagnosed more with it. Uh, but in either case, the numbers are creeping up. And who is it that tends to develop ALS? Does it favor a certain demographic, a certain age group, income level, male, female, race? What do you know about that? Well, it's a bit of a moving target. Initially, they thought, okay, well, it seems to affect people who are Northern European because we had a lot of Northern Europeans. Yeah. And so, you know, that was sort of the focus. That was sort of the working model. But as time has gone on and ALS has become better understood and around the world, clinicians have begun to understand the symptomatology and diagnose it, we have come to discover that ALS is being diagnosed and is unfortunately prevalent across the globe. And that includes different racial groups, male, female. It's slightly more prevalent in males, but fortunately is not greatly prevalent in females. One of the interesting groups that still stands out as being truly distinct is veterans who are one to two more times likely to develop ALS than the general population. We don't exactly know why, but they do stand out as an unusual demographic. That's very interesting. So we don't yet know what correlation there is between ALS and these veterans who are getting it more than the general population. Right. We don't really understand it. There's some theories about the basic concepts of people who are physically driven. You know, you've probably seen in the news where a lot of famous sports people develop ALS. So there's some theories about that, but not a lot of empirical data that nails that down to say, yep, it's definitely this. It seems to me when I think about ALS, I'm not thinking about a teenager. I'm not thinking about uh, somebody in their early 20s. Am I misguided there? Does it tend to first manifest itself when people reach a certain age, if they're going to get it? Yeah, it is on average, much more common among middle age. And so, you know, that tends to unfortunately be a large number of the people we serve. And unfortunately, in my experience, what that means is a lot of the people I serve have typically college age kids, teenagers, you know, that's sort of that life space that a lot of people are in going into young senior years in their 60s and into the 70s. So that tends to be the primary age group. That is not to say, unfortunately, that there are not people who are a smaller group in the very young categories in their 20s and 30s, and then a smaller group at the very old categories of their 80s. But that middle-aged group tends to be the, the majority. Okay. Going back to looking at the impact of ALS worldwide, you mentioned that there are people around the world who contract ALS. You talked about uh, 30,000 or so in the United States. Would you hazard a guess as to how big the population of people who have ALS is around the rest of the world? Would you say that maybe it would be greater in total than the 30,000? Or do you think it may be fewer than the 30,000? Well, I've never seen an overall number, just a bottom line number of how many people. And the reason for that may be that it's just not attainable to figure that out yet. Because as you might imagine, data from different healthcare systems across the globe, is not reliable or consistent. But what they're determining at this point, at least, is that it's about one in every 50,000 people globally that we're seeing who have ALS, which sounds 
fairly rare, but if you, you take a billion some odd people and you do the math, one out of 50,000, that's a lot of people. It is a lot of people. There are many diseases that would be categorized as rare. It's intriguing to me that ALS is such a well-known disease when 30,000 people, which is a lot, but still way smaller than, say, diabetes or Alzheimer's. Is it because of the dreadful, I hate to use that word, but the terrible nature of ALS, the fact that at the moment there's no cure for it? What do you think accounts for the fact that so many people know about it? This is just my opinion, of course, but I think a couple of things. I think it is, unfortunately, the nature of the disease that, you know, because it is a disease where an individual is largely cognitively fine during the entire course of their disease process, and yet they're losing their connection to the outside world because of what the disease does to their muscles and their ability to interact. So I think that makes such an impression for people, unfortunately, that, you know, it's something you remember, you see it and you don't forget it. And then the other thing I think that's happened is there are a lot of pretty prominent individuals in recent history and in the past, uh, Lou Gehrig, we just mentioned, who have or had ALS. And so you see it in the news, you hear about people dying of it, who are very prominent, well-known individuals. And that, of course, makes awareness greater in the general public. Absolutely. Steve, if you could talk about any recent or brand new developments in the diagnosis or treatment of ALS, and I'm presuming here, correct me if I'm wrong, that there's no way to prevent it. Yeah, that's true. There is, there's no known way yet to prevent the disease. There's certainly a lot of work being done and some progress being made, but yeah, that's the short answer to your question. Now, what are we doing? I mean, we could spend the next four hours uh, talking about <laughs> Uh, a million things that are being done, but I'll try to pick a few highlights. One of the things that's going to be surprising because it's not drug-based, and that is that research has demonstrated that attendance at a multidisciplinary clinic has an impact not only on quality of life, not surprisingly, but on the length of life. This is all about common sense. Good health care makes a difference, Right. When we talk about length of life, which, you know, if you don't have a cure, the next thing you focus on is, well, how can I extend my length of life and my quality of life? The clinics, our multidisciplinary clinics, are an important part of that. And research has actually demonstrated that qualitatively so that, you know, we know that that is something that can happen. And we encourage folks for that reason to participate, not required to. We certainly encourage folks that it's an important part of the overall treatment regimen that might help them in the long run in their goals. The other thing that I think is really important is the progression that people go through in the developments and ongoing efforts. They're promising. You know, there's a lot going on out there, a tremendous amount going on out there. And I think I heard a statistic recently, there's at any given time about 160 research projects going on with ALS. Wow. And then they're producing some actual impacts on the other end which are helpful to some folks. So one of them that I think in the last couple of years has become fairly well-known is Radicaba. And uh, as you may be aware, I know it's a big deal in the ALS community, Radicaba recently just uh, was authorized and is in the process of ramping up oral Radicaba. Prior to that, you couldn't get that orally, and obviously that made things very complicated. Now, being able to take oral Radicaba has the promise of being available to more people 
and hopefully making more of an impact. And uh, Radakava basically is demonstrated to extend or slow down development, I should say, over time uh, for some people with ALS. The other big one that just came out in the news, of course, was Amalex, or is in uh, Canada, they would call that Albrioza. Albrioza? Uh, I believe that's how it's pronounced. Okay. But Amalex in the United States has developed something, what we call here is AMX0035. It's the same thing. We just like to make it complicated by coming up with different names. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and that has been demonstrated to slow progression as well and make an impact for some folks. So that was approved in Canada very recently. And we, the ALS Association, are advocating and pushing for uh, the FDA here in the United States to approve that as well. And we're hopeful that they will. I really hope you're enjoying this episode so far. If you are, can you please do me a small favor? Let some of your family members, friends, or others in your network know about it and about healthcare on the horizon. If you happen to like this podcast, my interviewing approach, or perhaps even my voice, please consider checking out some of the many services my business provides. These include podcast hosting, creation and consulting, voiceovers, professional interviewing, production of audio or video promotional profiles to help you sell your business, promote your services, increase your customers, or raise funding, event hosting and meeting facilitation, and services to help you market to the large and growing seniors population. That's something I've actually written a book about. To learn more about all of this and my other podcast, Looking Forward, Opportunities for Job, Career, Business, and Investment Seekers, please visit www.jeff-ostroff.com. You can also email me at jeff at jeff-ostroff.com. Now let's get back to this episode of Healthcare on the Horizon. You mentioned these multidisciplinary clinics. Can you be a little bit more specific? Like, is this sort of going to the Mayo Clinic? Where are these clinics? Who runs these clinics? Well, it is kind of like going to the Mayo Clinic because it's very specialized. One of the problems for people with ALS is you can't get the care you need just anywhere. You really need it with specialists. So for instance, seeing a neuromuscular neurologist, you know, there are many types of neurologists. I don't know that folks always realize that. And a neuromuscular specialist is the kind of individual you need to see for ALS. They're not floating around everywhere. You don't go to your local primary office and say, hey, can I see a neuromuscular specialist? <laughs> Chances are they're not going to find one for you. So we're blessed here in the Philadelphia area to have several ALS clinics, which is unusual in the positive sense, because other areas, if you need to go to an ALS clinic, there's one, and that's the one you go to. So we have several, and uh, they're all very good. And the operative thing there is it provides what's called multidisciplinary care, which ALS, way back when our association started this process, we helped invent that. And nowadays, it's the byword for all medical care everywhere. And the basic gist of it is that you've got all the specialists in one place, who see you around the same time and collaborate with one another to provide the best possible care. Instead of doing what most people unfortunately do, which is to drive around for three weeks, seeing 17 different specialists who don't talk to each other. Exactly. And to have you expand on that, Steve, 
You mentioned that in Philadelphia, where you're located near, the office that you work for is in the Philadelphia region. There are several of these. But if you live outside of Philadelphia, if you live, in fact, outside of the United States, will the people listening who live in those areas also be able to find these? We might mention later where they might get some more information, but are these available in other areas? Yes. The good news about this multidisciplinary model for ALS clinics is that it was so enormously successful and continues to be that uh, it's been adopted all over the world. And so these are clinics that can be found in developing countries, certainly in every first world developed country across the globe, because you, you can't argue with success. Yeah. Are these clinics operated by ALS organizations or are you talking about Mayo Clinic type, like hospital-based organizations or physician groups? Yeah, it, an example would be our partnership with uh, Jefferson ALS Clinic, which is one of the excellent, uh, it's actually a center of excellence in uh, downtown Philadelphia. We partner with them and support their efforts to sponsor that clinic. And typically what it looks like, it's a partnership between the local ALS Association chapter and a given medical center. And so that's what we do is we support them. At the other clinics, we support the families that go there. So for instance, uh, Penn has an excellent clinic as well. We partner with them to help implement their treatment plans in the community to make sure that the things that are recommended and need to be done, get done when they leave that clinic and go into the community. And we work with those clinics hand in hand, communicating day in, day out to make that happen. Okay, that's great. And just for those of you who aren't from the Philadelphia area, Steve has given a couple of examples there of healthcare systems, Jefferson and Penn. So you might want to think about your area and think about healthcare systems that might have this. But again, hopefully we can show our listeners how they can learn more about how to access one of these multidisciplinary clinics. That's a great development, Steve. One other question before we start looking forward. You mentioned earlier on about diagnosis. Maybe there are more cases because we're getting better at diagnosing ALS. Is that a recent development too? Our ability to more quickly understand what this person has? Yes. One of the things we do as an association, my chapter does it, and really the entire ALS community is trying to do, is to get the word out in the medical community to look for the basic symptoms of ALS and refer somebody to a specialist so that they can look at that and help that family determine if it's ALS or not. That's critical for two reasons. Like any disease, the sooner you get to it, the better, right? And then something that uh, is also true is the sooner you're diagnosed, the better chance you have to get involved in early research projects. Because most research prefers to work with folks that are early in diagnostic sure. so that they can demonstrate the effectiveness of whatever they're trying to work on. Later on, if you're more progressed, it's harder to be a participant in those research projects because you're too far along the process for that research to really demonstrate the effectiveness they're looking for. So there's a number of reasons why it's real critical. And then the third reason is what my team does, which is to provide tangible support to somebody living with ALS. Well, if you haven't been diagnosed for a long time, you're well along and struggling and we'll help you, but we're late in the game. So the earlier we can get to that and assist, the better. Those are great points. Steve, what do you see on the horizon 
that might involve the potential prevention diagnosis and or treatment of ALS? Well, I think a couple of things that makes it hopeful for folks. I don't think anybody understood back in the day the lack of knowledge we had about how the brain works and how the body works. We really thought we had that down 50 years ago, maybe even 100 years ago. We didn't know what we were talking about. We have since discovered that this is a very, very complex system. Ask any neurologist and they will tell you that as smart as they are, and they're incredibly intelligent people, it's hard for them to grasp what goes on in the brain and how it all connects with the body. And so I say all that to say this, the basic understanding necessary to even work on a cure was something we needed to collect a lot more information on than we thought. So what have we been doing all these years? We've been spending a lot of time learning a whole lot about the brain and how it all connects to our muscles and how it all works. And that collective effort, which is going on across the globe, there's a lot going on here in the United States. I would even say we're the leaders, really. But there's stuff happening all over the world that is transformative because it opens up the possibility of discovering treatments and cures. It's very exciting to hear that. Do you foresee an improvement in the diagnosis or treatment coming from a multiple of things? For example, it could come from drugs. It could come from testing. Could there be some other ways that you would see these improvements coming about? Stem cells, that's another one. Where do you see possibly, you're not a soothsayer, we don't have my ass going to be that, Steve, but you're in as good a position as most anybody, except for those who are right there looking through the microscope, so to speak, to know where this hope might come from. Can you speak a little bit to that, please? Yeah. One of the problems getting back to diagnostics is this is a disease currently that is diagnosed primarily through symptomatology, meaning we're looking at what we're seeing rather than a test. So for instance, certain things, you take a blood test, they tell you, you've got this, right? You don't do that with ALS. There is no blood test because there's no clear marker. We have some genetic markers, but they're only for specific types of ALS and it's fairly limited. What we're really looking for is a marker that we can say, hey, I could take a test like a blood test or other tests and indicate exactly, precisely that you have ALS. Right now, we look at symptoms. Uh, we do some other neurological exams. And then that's how we determine by ruling out that somebody has ALS. So the diagnostic improvements are two things. One is we're getting closer and closer to figuring out markers, which is really important because then theoretically you could do sort of a blood test or urine test or whatever it is. That's real important. And then the other thing is we're figuring out how it works. What happens that causes us to see what we see with ALS? Before, we didn't really understand that. Today, we're beginning to get a handle on what is breaking down and why it is breaking down. And like anything in life, the solution is always about figuring out the problem. Do you foresee possibly, again, a number of ways of getting at this drugs, stem cells, the kind of care provided? Yeah. So one of the things that um, they're definitely working on, again, back in the day, everybody was focused on, let's get the magic bullet, a cure. And we're still focused on that. We're looking for a cure, obviously. Everybody wants a cure and, and we're hopeful that we'll get one. But we're also realizing that there's treatment possibilities that could come through this. To give an example in a different disease process, HIV started out with 
we need a cure for HIV. And then it eventually developed scientifically to realize they had a series of treatments that could arrest it and basically allow people to live with HIV. Now, will that be the outcome of ALS? I don't know. I'm not sure anybody absolutely knows that. A lot of people have opinions about it. Some of them better informed than me. But nonetheless, that's a possibility for ALS, that maybe treatments uh, will come along and, and are in the process of coming along that will make that happen. And maybe we'll just find a cure. You take something and it's cured. But the fact that we're exploring that and we're beginning to understand that is very hopeful. That's great, Steve. I guess the only other thing I want to ask you before we get into talking about your organization and ALS, the things that you've been talking about into the future, what's out there on the horizon, are you seeing some significant developments over the next five or 10 years? Or are we talking 15, 20 years out, let's say? Again, speaking for myself, I, I do hear this opinion among a, a lot of folks in the ALS community, including some very prominent researchers and scientists. There is a lot of optimism that we are on the cusp of something in the not too distant future because our collective knowledge is so great now and our understanding has improved so dramatically that we really do hope. And I think there's reason to hope that it's not in the too distant future that we might have treatments and even perhaps a cure in the not too distant future. One of the reasons for that is we're managing the research process in a different way than we used to. It's something called platform trials. And basically back in the day, you had one research project, you did your research project. Then you finished that up, then you did another research project. You finished that, you did the next one. This took years and years and years and billions of dollars. Now the platform trial model combines multiple efforts simultaneously. And without wasting a lot of time going into that, because we could spend hours talking about <laughs> platform trials, I do want to say this, that adds up in a sum total of faster development by light years. You see that and you say, well, that's reason for optimism. If we're doing a whole lot more, a whole lot faster, by definition, common sense is going to produce something. Very encouraging, Steve. Great to hear that. Steve, this has been fantastic. So much great information, so much reason for hope. I wonder if you would mind telling us a little bit more about the ALS organization, especially the one in Philadelphia where you are, how people can benefit from what you're doing, how they might be able to help you out, maybe as volunteers or donors, how they can find out more about you. And also, where do they find out about all this great stuff you've been talking about? There's trials going on. There's new drugs that are out there. And there's clinics. How do people find out about that, whether they're in Philadelphia or Timbuktu? Absolutely. Absolutely. Those are all important questions. So just uh, very quickly, I think a, a couple of things I'll, I'll touch base on and that'll answer that, hopefully. One is people need help now, right? Um, those living with ALS, that's really, really important to support them. We do that through the care services team that, that I'm a part of and that I lead, and we have information on that. We also do it through research. The ALS Association, our association funds, we're the largest private funder of ALS research in the world. Wow. The reason that's so important is because you got to get the ball rolling so that pharmaceutical companies are interested later. They don't want to spend the money up front on things they don't know has any hope of fleshing out into anything, but they will spend money later with things that look promising. So we help fund that research. And we also are a clearinghouse for all the research you're talking about. The last thing is advocacy. We do a lot of work advocating for people living with ALS, 
research funding, funding to help people with home care, et cetera, all makes a huge difference for those living now and those in the future that have hope of a cure and treatments. So how do you get a hold of that information? Well, a couple of things. First of all, our website is a great place to go, and that is alsphiladelphia.org, alsphiladelphia.org. If you don't live in the Philadelphia area, it's okay. Go to that website. We have links to all the research and all the work being done nationally and even across the globe. Explore it a little bit. You'll find stuff there. You'll also find other chapters in the United States if you live in a different area of this country, but explore it. I think you'll find a lot of what you're looking for. Yes. And the last piece I'll say is if you're interested in getting involved, the ALS community, somebody once said to me, is the best club nobody wants to belong to. <laughs> it's an amazing community yeah. and it's made up of everybody imaginable. We have people from prominent scientists and physicians who are donating their time and talent to what we do, to mom and dad who run a pizza shop, to everybody. All are welcome and enrich our organization and our ALS community in their presence and in the work they do. Very, very helpful. I know that you run some terrific fundraising events. I've been a part of some of those. You've had a great one for, what was it, Lou Gehrig's Day? Or what was that called? We did. We had Lou Gehrig's Day with the Philadelphia Phillies. And uh, it was a huge success. And we're the lucky charm for the Philadelphia Phillies because they won that game hugely and we started a winning streak for them so <laughs> i think every team in the united states needs to get in touch with their local als chapter are there als chapters not only around the united states that people can connect with but all over the world there are als organizations all over the world uh, they obviously go by different names and are structured in different ways but uh yes and again if they go to our website, uh, they can get links to a lot of stuff that's going on throughout the United States. They can also get links to what's going on internationally, which is great. And our overall ALS Association has links on that website to explore some of that as well. Okay, that's terrific. Steve, it's been great having you on. Thank you so much, not only for being on the show, but for all the great work that you're doing literally meeting up with the individuals who have ALS and their families. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks for having us. Thanks for listening to this episode of Healthcare on the Horizon. I hope you've enjoyed it and will benefit from it. And if you did like it, please share this episode with anyone you know who you think might also find it of value. And if you have any comments or questions about Healthcare on the Horizon, or any suggestions for future topics or guest experts, you can reach me at the website www.jeff-ostroff.com or through my email address jeff at jeff-ostroff.com. Thanks.